Peace to you. Welcome back to The Naked Truth, and thank you for joining me. We are going to pick up where we left off in the Old Testament. In the book of 2 Kings, we're made it to chapter 3. If you want to read along with me, let's begin with verse 1. Now, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. So, there, we're continuing with sort of the the descent of power um, from uh, king to king in both the um, kingdom of Israel, which consists of those 10 tribes, and the kingdom of Judah, which consists of those two tribes. Um, and like I said before, some of the names will be the same, like even Jehoram and Ahab. We've read about those names of people already. Um, but this one in particular is who we're talking about now. So verse 2, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother, for he put away the sacred pillars of Baal that his father had made. So the narrator here, again, the book is called Second Kings. No, there's not someone there named Kings. So we know that that's not, we don't know who it is who's actually scribed this and written it down. But it seems the narrator is letting us know that the nature of that family is not good. Um, Jehoram and his mom and daddy, it seems, were corrupt and corrupted by, according to the narrator, um, other religions or bad religion or idolatry, however you want to think of it. They weren't being faithful to the one entity who's being called Lord in this second verse. And, and as we've read before, Lord in English here is being translated from the word Jehovah or name Jehovah, if you prefer, uh, to the word Lord in English in this second verse. And like we've said before, that's not always the case, but that's what it is right here. Baal also is yet again another entity, deity, that people worship as their Lord. It's just not translated to Lord, but that's just the name uh, of another spirit, deity, masters is what it translates to in English that the people um, worship. This isn't the first time. Verse 3, nevertheless, he perished, sorry, he persisted in the sins of Jeroham, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. So um, it says that he didn't continue with the idolatry in one form, uh, the the sacred pillars that would be, um, that his mom and daddy put up, sacred pillars to Baal. That's what verse 2 was letting us know. No sacred pillars could be anything. They could be. Uh, I think of something like a totem pole, like how Native Americans use, or uh, the Washington Monument, like how uh, America, um, well, you know, the United States has used uh, phallic symbols, basically something long and tall and hard is um, seems to be a very popular thing that people like to result to. And those sacred pillars are uh, another form of it, it seems. It's an exaltation of the patriarchy, the misogyny, the tending to the welfare and promoted promotion of men and less so of women. Verse three, nevertheless, oh, so verse three is that he quit the one thing with the pillars, the sacred pillars. He didn't continue that. He took those down, but he did continue with some other idolatry. If I remember right, Jeroboam, it, I meant to say it when we read it before in verse three, um, is the one, if I remember right, is the one who put up the two golden calves for people to worship and told them that that's who actually rescued them from enslavement 
in Egypt when they were in Africa and went through what we read in the book of Exodus, the Exodus story, when they were emancipated. It turned out the cows were the ones that did it according to uh, the religious system uh, of the day. Verse four, now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder and he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. So Misha, name looks familiar, is um, a male here also. And he's also a sheep breeder. So he deals in sheep, and uh, the lambs, the sheep there and their wool. And he uses that sort of as a barter payment for uh, the services that the animals need, including shearing, you know, getting rid of the wool. Shaving it off of them when it's too uh, when the seasons change so that they won't roast <laughs> during the summer, um, and also so you can harvest that wool and make more money and clothes off of it. Verse 15 and things, verse 5. But he had but it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So now Ahab, the one king who apparently was able to uh. Um, form that treaty with Moab. Moab, by the way, is just a neighboring country. Um, some of the relatives of the same people, just distant relatives, um, but around that same Jordan River. So he's died, and when Ahab died, it turns out that Moab decided to rebel against the treaty, the agreement, for the peace that was between the two countries, our areas. Verse 6, so King Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. So as always, please forgive me if I mispronounce any of these, but the king of Israel, the 10 tribes, is gathering his people together, mustering them up, rallying for war. Verse 7, And he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. So just like we read previously when uh, one of the uh, houses, nations went to war, sometimes the other house, king, uh, both Judah and Israel would go to war together in an alliance, but they weren't being counted all as Jews to this point. Uh, they're still, they're at this point, two separate houses. Later on, by the time of Jesus's time, all of the tribes collectively are just known plainly as Jews, um, as are the people in the area, Judeans, also plainly known as Jews. So it didn't matter so much what tribe people were uh, from by the time of Jesus' uh, ministry in the Bible, probably because the people had been uh, taken captive and dispersed twice by then. The Babylonians and the Assyrians took them captive and carried them away. Um, at separate different times throughout the what we call the Old Testament. So by the time they were the diaspora, the Jewish diaspora, the Hebrew Israelite diaspora, um, uh, were gathered together again by the time of Jesus's time in the Bible. Uh, again, the people were just being called Jews, not um, uh, Simeonites or Reubenites or Gadites and all that. They were just called Jews, uh, regardless of what preachers may tell you in modern times. Verse 8, then he said, which way shall we go up? And he answered, by way of the wilderness of Edom. So um, the two kingdoms have decided to form an alliance and go to war. Um, and now they're plotting their path uh, for 
the attack. Verse 9, so the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they marched on the roundabout, on that roundabout route seven days, and there was no water for the army nor for the animals that followed them. So just like that, very slightly, another kingdom has entered into the picture. Edom, we've read about them previously also. They're um, the Edomites, the also relatives of the Israelites, distant cousins, basically, um, and in the same area around the Jordan, although some preachers will try to convince you that because Edom, just like Adam, translates to red, people will try to convince you that red it means it, because the name means red. It's talking about a red nation, and it's talking about Russia. It's not talking about Russia. It's not talking about a red nation. It's talking about Edom, Idumea, right there around the Jordan River. Um, that's what it's talking about. And so now they also, it seems, have joined into the battle. And Edom and Moab, if I remember right, are pretty close uh, as far as their borders on the eastern side of the Jordan River. So it's probably pretty common for them to um, ally with each other uh, when battles happen, I would assume. But I wouldn't assume anything. I'm just saying that's what it seems like what's happened now. Verse 10, and the king of Israel said, alas, for the king, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. So now, just like that, the king of Israel, even though he's mustered an army to go out to battle, has now already, it seems, decided he's going to be defeated. He's decided that the Lord has uh, arranged for him and his alliance to be defeated by the opposing army of Moab. Um, ver Wait a minute, my Moab? Deliver them into the hand of Moab. Uh, I thought Moab was on his side. Did I misunderstand that earlier? Let me see. Let me just scroll up and look again real quick. The king of Moab will bring the sheep. Okay, so it, I missed that part. Sorry. Apparently, time had gone by between the time of the alliance with the king of Moab and the sheep and the shearing and all that to this point. And so then, after he had died, apparently there was a breakdown of that diplomacy. That's how come it. I would guess that that's why now. Uh, Moab is on uh, has a war front on their mind rather than peace. So let's see how it goes. Verse eleven. But Josaphat said, "Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him?" So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, "Elisha the son of Shaphat is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah." So just like one of pre in a previous battle we read about. When uh, going to war, they were looking for what the religious uh, authorities had to say, their opinion, their take on the matter and how they should proceed. They consulted uh, not just one source either, not just one entity or lord. They would consult 400, if I remember right, maybe even 450 prophets, priests, ministers of Baal and um, see what they had to say. And then also sought the opinion of Elijah before he flew away, before he was raptured away, before he left in a UFO, however you want to think of it, before he left, uh, and passed the um, the mantle on to Elisha, literally. Um, that's who they consulted. Now they're thinking the same thing here, that 
uh, where they may be facing war and they want to get God's opinion. Is there anyone who has uh, the ability to get in touch with God, a seer, a prophet? So they're saying, yeah, there is. Elijah does. Elisha does. And they're letting him know letting um, that Elisha's reputation is solid because he actually worked with Elijah, who's basically his apprentice. Verse 12, and Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. So those three kings, king of Edom, king of Israel, and king of Judah, have gone down now to go get some religious advice from Elisha about the war they're facing. Verse 13, then Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, no, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. So now Elisha is calling out one of the three kings who've come to him for some, um, some information, some guidance, and that would be the king of Israel. And he's calling him out. Because he's like, well, what do you want my opinion for when you aren't interested in what it is I have to say? You're interested in idolatry. You're interested in seeking out what those other entity, entities, deities, gods, with the lowercase g, have to say. So he's saying, why don't you just go back to them and find out what it is they have to say? But um, having good sense, he replied, no, no, no. He knows that, that those other things may be resources they tap into when they want general opinions. But he's like, but he knows the one to go to when he wants results. And um, that's the Lord Almighty, or the Lord as they're calling it. Um, that's God. Verse 14, and Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. So that's pretty cold-blooded. Elisha is letting the king know that if it weren't, if he weren't in the company of someone honorable, he's letting the king of Israel know if he didn't have the king of Judah with him, Jehoshaphat with him, then he'd get no face time. He'd get uh, the cold shoulder. He'd get ignored. He's letting him know that the only reason he's even getting an audience with God in this case, because that's who they're really going to um, get advice from God, their intermediary is Elijah or Elisha or whatever other prophet it is that people would see throughout the Bible. So it's got to be kind of hurt, hurtful or make, you know, get him in his feelings to know that if it weren't for his company, <clears throat> excuse me, he'd get ignored. Verse 15, but now bring me a musician. Then it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. So once again, like we read in the time of um, Saul, the first king of Israel, um, not the way Jesus was the king of the Jews and crucified, the very first one in the Bible was Saul, um, and not Saul who became Paul, but Saul, the first king of Israel. Um, he'd get those same uh, similar, he'd use similar tactics. He'd use music, um, musicians, even David at one point to um, soothe the distress that he'd be experiencing. And the way the narrators at that time wrote it, they'd say it was a distressing spirit from God. Um, and I guess and since what we read previously about if you're going to believe everything in the Bible and believe that every reference to the Lord is talking about God Almighty, then you'd have to believe that the Lord employed, which I don't believe, by the way, but if you want to believe that, 
um, then you have to believe that, just like it said, it's the Lord who sends those demons, those, maybe not demons is not the word, evil spirits, distressing spirits, troubling spirits, however you want to think of it, it's according to the way it reads, it's the Lord that sends those spirits to go and distress people and torment people. And, um, and um, it's from the Lord, if the way it reads. And again, that's if you want to believe it, that it's the Lord we're reading about. As Christians, uh, we're supposed to go by what Jesus says, and what Jesus says is different. So, um, but again, as always, believe what you want. But Jesus says no one has heard God's voice or seen God's form at any time. Yet, again, we read about people uh, talking with God, having conversations with God, sitting down with God, eating with God, uh, wrestling with God, and defeating God in a wrestling match, all in the Old Testament. So, again, believe what you want to believe. But uh, as Christians, shouldn't Jesus' word be the default, the last word? Um, that's just how I deal with it. But believe what you want. Verse 16. And he said, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. So now they sought help from the, um, the, the holy man, the prophet. He's told them, okay, I'll help you out. Play some music for me. And um, it seems that seems to invoke the spirit. Because right after that, it says that that's when the Lord came upon him. And after that, he's starting to give them orders basically for how to bring about the miracle, the miracle, the supernatural results they're seeking. The same way a medium, a spiritist, a palm reader, uh, or even Jesus tells people to do in the New Testament when he'll tell them, send them on a, mi a mission to get what it is they're seeking, whether it's um, their vision back or um, cleansing from some sort of ailment, whatever the case may be. Verse 16, so he's telling them what to do to put ditches, um, dig ditches throughout the land. Why? Verse 17, for thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain, yet that valley shall be filled with water, so that you, your cattle, and your animals may drink. So even though they weren't praying for water, it seems the, the, the answer the word that's what it would be the word that the prophet is getting from the lord and and giving to the people is that they should dig ditches because um god's sending rain and he's letting he's telling them and it's not going to be the natural rain that you would <clears throat> excuse me be able to forecast because you could feel the south wind blow and know it's going to be hot or um see it get overcast and cloudy and know it's going to rain instead he's letting them know Without wind, without warning, you're going to get water all over the land. How's God going to do it? Let's see. Verse 18. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also, <clears throat> excuse me, deliver the Moabites into your hand. So not only will the Lord, according to verse 18, provide the people with water to drink supernaturally, but also miraculously provide them with victory over their enemies as they go out to battle the Moabites. Verse um, 19. Also, you shall attack every fortified city, every choice city, and shall cut down every good tree and stop up every spring of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. So now, not only is the Lord telling 
again, I'm just saying it's the Lord because that's how it reads. The Lord's telling them to go and um, plunder and basically uh, loot the area of Moab that they're going to be, that they've now been assured victory over and to even spoil the land. That's when, like, they'll say they'll salt the land. They'll put so much salt on it that you can't grow anything on it because the salt robs the uh, plants of the ability to live. Um, let's see, verse 20. Now, it happened in the morning when the grain offering was offered that suddenly um, water came by way of Edom and the land was filled with water. So, it says came by way of Edom. I guess it means from that direction in the sky that they saw um, rain moving in. It doesn't really clarify. Or did it come in as like a tidal wave from Edom and fill up the land? Since it said there won't be any wind and it's going to happen. However it's happened, suddenly now they've got plenty of water. So they aren't uh, in drought or thirsty, it seems. Although it didn't mention that they were struggling with that at all anyway. That's not what they went to the prophet for, at least not uh, expressly. Verse 21, and when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to bear arms and older were gathered, and they stood at the border. So um, if they were old enough to carry a gun, I'm sorry, to carry a weapon, they went out to war. It's basically like a draft, an impromptu draft of anyone old enough and able to arm themselves going to the border to fight. Verse 22, then they rose up early in the morning and the sun was shining on the water and the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. So now this is going to sound a little crazy. So now, like a mirage, the water that appeared out of Edom and has filled those ditches and covered the land, um, the miraculous arrival of water the way it's described, is now appearing to the Moabites, it seems, as giant pools of blood. Now, how does that make sense? Even if you murder someone, you slay someone, if someone kills themselves, uh, how many people would have to kill themselves for there to be a whole pool of blood to appear that way in a desert? That just sounds crazy. But um, it is how I read, so let's keep reading. Um, verse... 23, and they said, this is the blood. I'm sorry, this is blood. The kings have surely struck swords and have killed one another. Now therefore Moab to the spoil. So now it seems Moab is seeing this optical illusion of the water that arrived appearing to be blood. And they've assumed, even though I, I don't know why they would think they were fighting if they didn't hear any sounds of battle, no cries of victory or shouts of defeat. But they're assuming now that they must have killed each other. They're thinking that there was a mutiny among the three kings and um, that they've killed each other and that that's why the land is covered in blood. Verse 24, so when they came to the camp of Israel, Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites so that they fled before them and they entered their land, killing the Moabites. So just like that, the tables were turned. The Moabites apparently rushed on into the area unarmed, I guess, thinking that they've already been killed. And when they did, the Israelites turned tables, attacked them, killed them, slaughtered them. Um, verse 25, then they destroyed the cities. And each man threw a stone on every good piece of land and filled it. 
and they stopped up all the springs of water and cut down all the good trees, but they let left the stones of Kerharaseth intact. However, the singers surrounded and attacked. I'm sorry. However, the slingers surrounded and attacked it. So, um, that stone. I thought oh, I don't want to tell you the wrong thing about that stone. I remember they set up a couple of stones as sort of monument stones as they along the way on the journey. Uh, but um, I wouldn't dare say I remember which one that is. But you feel free to search it. Um, just search for Harriset. And it'll show you where it appears um, in, in scripture. And you can figure out its uh, origin story better. Um, but whatever the case may be at this point, the people have been faithful. They've uh, gone in and slaughtered their enemies and um, ruined the land by putting stones on it. Um, because if the stones are there, it makes it makes it tougher for plant life to grow. Uh, all those Plants will use stones to, you know, wrap their roots around many times. Um, it's hard for them to flower and stuff, in, generally speaking, in a place that's covered in rocks or covered in salt. Verse 26, and when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, did we skip one? No, okay. So, and when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too, too fierce for him, he took with him 700 men. Who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not. So now the king of Moab isn't willing to just give up and roll over like that king previously read about. Who um, um, was this, if this? I think it was an Israelite king, not a Judean king, but who, when the enemy attacked him, he was willing to give up his wives, his children, and his people's wives and children, and even the gold and silver that the. Uh, People attacking him were willing or demanding. He's willing to give up all of that stuff at first. Um, but not this one. Um, the king of Moab was not having it. He um, went to try and stop, um, turn the tables to turn the tide of the battle by getting 700 of his own men and break, trying to break through to the king of Edom. But he could not. And now verse 27. This is a one of the craziest verses, this is out of the blue. Let's see, verse 27, then he took his old eldest son who would have reigned in his place and offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was great indignation against Israel. So they departed from him and returned to their own land. So to understand what happened there, the king of Moab was afraid he was going to be defeated, it seems. So rather um, out of desperation, he did what we read about Abraham doing, taking his son and using him as, an, as, as a sacrifice. Although Abraham didn't uh, go through with the uh, sacrifice of his child. Uh, you see, the king of Moab did. He's doing it to affect the outcome of the battle. And clearly it worked, even though... Um, sounds gruesome he took his oldest son who would have been king in his place who was next in line to reign in other words after him and killed him offered him as a sacrifice on the wall so that everyone could see it a burnt offering so he killed him and lit him on fire like he would a barbecue for all of the world to see and again it must have been effective it was so outrageous that it caused his enemies to turn back and leave him alone 
those three kings that went at, went at him, Judah, Israel, and Moab. I'm sorry, Judah, Israel, and Edom. After they saw him being desperate enough to do that, that was enough for them to turn back from the war and stop um, fighting with him. Crazy. That was the last verse, though. So that's where we'll end this reading. As always, thank you for joining me for The Naked Truth. I hope you'll join me again. And as always, I hope it's a blessing for you. I love you and I appreciate it. And I'll see you next time. God bless you and peace be with you. Peace be with you.